All right. Well, good morning, everybody. For those of you who don't know, I'm Jason. I'm one of the co-ministers here at Oceanside Sanctuary. It's good to see all of you. It's good to see some of you who have been uh, out of town for a little while or some of you who have just uh, been on summer vacation or uh, maybe some of you who were just, you know, really upset the last time you heard me talk and it's taken you this long to give us another chance. So either way, whatever brings you here today, we're really glad to have you. We are in the midst of a teaching series here that we are calling Conversations with Jesus. We have been visiting passages in scripture where Jesus is having a dialogue or a conversation with somebody and then asking ourselves, what can we take from this? What uh, a pattern or inspiration can we pull from these moments in scripture that are relevant to, to us today? Today, I'm going to uh, visit a unique passage related to dialogue, much like last week when I talked about Jesus being in the desert and having a dialogue or a conversation with the devil. And I, I put forth to you that that was a genuine example of Jesus's practice of dialogue and conversation and said that it was essentially uh, Jesus's dialogue with himself, with his own shadow self. Today, I want to suggest that another passage that we don't tend to think of as a conversation is in fact exactly that. So we're going to take a look at Matthew chapter six, but before we do, I want to invite you just to say a prayer with me as we jump into the text. Well, God, we thank you for this moment that we have today in this space with each other, uh, with our prayers, with our songs, with these passages of scripture, and ultimately with you. We pray that you would bring us every day, uh, with every season of our lives, closer to a sense that we are engaged in a conversation with you in the midst of our triumphs in the midst of our difficulties, in the midst of our dreams that are fulfilled, in the midst of our grief and our losses, it's our prayer that we would become people who are able to experience a sense of your goodness in every aspect of our lives. We ask that you would do that for us today as we read these passages in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, two weeks ago, we got a phone call at the church. Um, this is, by the way, uh, we, we do at the church still have a landline. I know that's a little bit unusual, um, but we do have a phone that's actually plugged into the wall that we get phone calls on from time to time. But because, you know, we're like the oldest people on staff here are like me uh, and I'm a Gen Xer, like I... I don't have a landline in my life other than the church landline. So, you know, we all walk around with phones in our pockets. And so because of that, that phone never gets answered. So apologies to those of you who have been like calling the church. Uh, what happens is you always get the voicemail and then the voicemail, you know, comes to one of us in an email and then we like call you back. Right. But, but what's really nice about that setup is it's a really great way of screening a lot of phone calls. Um, because we get a lot of phone calls uh, with folks that we'd rather just not talk to. And uh, about two weeks ago, we got one of those calls. Uh, a very concerned woman called who was a Christian. She apparently had visited our website and saw that our website is littered with like rainbow flags and very clear indications that we are a gay affirming church. And that was disturbing to her. 
And so she called to share with me exactly why we were all going to hell. So I, I didn't share this with all of you. The reason I didn't forward this email to all of you is because I didn't think you needed to hear that. Um, but she spent about 20 minutes. Yeah. Fair. Thank you. Uh, thank you for that reminder. So uh, she spent the better part of that 20 minutes. I listened to the whole message. Um, and I'm here to share with you that she said absolutely nothing new. Uh, it's something that I've heard over and over again. Uh, she shared passages from Leviticus chapter 18 and Romans chapter 1 in an effort to convince those of us here who are like responsible for this church that we were leading people astray. Now, it's up to you to decide if we're leading you astray or not, but what I want to point out is that she used those passages of Scripture in a way that's very, very common. Uh, people generally will pull those passages of Scripture out, and they will use them as a kind of weapon to bludgeon people to death. Right, And some Bibles are particularly useful for this. We have like a 100-year-old Bible here in the back somewhere, and it would really knock somebody out if they hit you over the head with it. Uh, but, but what happens is, is people end up using those passages not as a way to engage in conversation, but as a way to shut down the conversation. The whole reason we're engaged in this teaching series is because it's my deepest hope that you would gain an understanding of Christianity as a tradition of conversation, not as a tradition of laws and rules that shut down conversation. And so I just thought this was an amazingly appropriate example of how this works. We tend to weaponize passages of scripture in order to make our point. This brings us to Matthew chapter six, Verses 43 to 48, I'd like you to hear what Jesus says here and ask yourself, how does this resemble the other conversations that we have visited in this series? Matthew chapter 6, verse 43 says this, You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, here's what I want to point out to you. I actually taught on this exact passage not that long ago. So I'm not going to delve into the meaning of this particular passage. Instead, I want you to notice a pattern that Jesus is engaged here. In verse 43, he says, You have heard that it was said, X, but I say, Y. This is actually the sixth time in Matthew 6 that he does this. Prior to this, verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say, do not re resist an evildoer. Back in verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said of those in ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you've made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, 
Verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, but let him give a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those in ancient times, you shall not murder. And whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. These are known as the six antitheses of Jesus. And it's an obvious pattern of teaching, a particular approach to a way of teaching. And these passages have been interpreted in extraordinarily unfortunate ways in the history of Christianity. They have been used precisely to create even more rigid rules and laws for Christians who are attempting to live faithfully in the life of Jesus. So in other words, Jesus says things like, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you that if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, then you have committed adultery in your heart. Oh my gosh, who can possibly live up to that? It's as if Jesus is meaner than Moses. <laughs> which is a little bit hard to imagine. Right? <laughs> and so not able to reconcile the idea that Jesus is meaner than Moses, another sort of popular interpretation of these passages is that Jesus is attempting to lay such a heavy burden of obedience on our shoulders that we will finally relent, that we will give in to the enormous weight of God's righteous requirements and finally admit, God, I can't do it and just submit in obedience to whatever God tells us to do. I don't think that's what's happening here at all. I think there's a really obvious pattern of what Jesus is doing, but we are blinded in our ability to see it because we expect scripture, especially in the New Testament, to simply establish a new set of very clear, clear rules and boundaries that we can follow mindlessly without having to think about it. Did you catch that? Like, I think we want to take the words of Jesus and the words of the New Testament and establish them as a new set of rules and laws so that we can mindlessly follow them without thinking about it. But I think Jesus is inviting us into the exact opposite posture. Jesus follows a kind of pattern of dialectic, right? That pattern of dialectic is a thesis. You have heard it said X. And then an antithesis. But I say Y. This is a dialogue that Jesus is having. It's a conversation that Jesus is having. Not with another person, but with his entire tradition. He is engaging in interpretations of the law common to his day, being argued about in the public courts, in the courts of worship constantly by the followers of Shammai and Hillel who are always debating about how to properly interpret the law for them today. Jesus enters that conversation. His conversation is not with the woman at the well. His conversation is not with a follower or a disciple of him where he asks questions and elicits a response. Instead, he sort of steps back and engages in the bigger dialogue of the Jewish tradition. 
This is exactly the teaching style that we see Jesus employ over and over again. Jesus does not come and give simple, clear, straightforward laws. In fact, Jesus is famous for not answering people's very straightforward questions. People come to him and they ask questions like, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he asks them questions. Well, have you followed the law? Yes. Do you give to the poor? Yes. Well, then sell all your possessions and follow me. Uh, no. No. Or when he engages his disciples and asks the question, who do you say that I am? Who is everybody else saying that I am? Or, or when the experts in the law come and question him, interrogate him, and try to trap him with bad faith conversation, he refuses to answer. Instead, he answers with parables. He turns the tables on them. All of this is an indication of something that we in Western Christianity are entirely unfamiliar with. And that is that our tradition appropriated from Judaism is an ongoing, living, breathing conversation about who God is and what is good and what is bad and how we interpret that for our lives today. It is not a fixed set of rules or laws that are universal that apply to all people in all places at all times. That is not possible. God himself is the first example of this. When God is incarnated in the person of Jesus, he takes on the culture of an entirely foreign group of people and translates the good news, the kerygma of God for them. The gospel is all about translation into a new place, a new time, and for a new people. And in order to do that, we have to contend with what it means and how to interpret it. This is why the Jewish tradition is just rife with dialogue and debate about what the law means. One of my favorite stories about this is in a very old story that comes from the Babylonian Talmud from the seventh century. It's the story about the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. These were the two contemporary famous schools of Jewish interpretation while Jesus was alive. When Jesus was a boy, 12 years, old, 12 years old, I told this story a few weeks ago. When Jesus was a boy, 12 years old, and he leaves his parents and he goes to the temple, engages in dialogue with the scholars in the temple. The temple at that time was ruled by Rabbi Hillel. Rabbi Hillel was essentially the president of the temple at that time. Contemporary with Jesus. He engages them in dialogue and they are amazed at his understanding. Fast forward to Jesus when he begins his public ministry. Now it is the school of Shammai that is in charge. And their interpretations of scripture are much stricter, much more, you might say, oppressive. And Jesus contends with those teachers throughout the gospels. But these two schools, Hillel and Shammai, are constantly debating amongst each other. There's this story that comes from the 7th century from the Babylonian Talmud that says that for three years there was a dispute between the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. And the former saying, the law is in agreement with our views. And the latter saying, the law is in agreement with our views. 
For three years, they debated and argued and went back and forth until finally there was a booming voice from heaven that said, these and those are the words of the living God. But the law is in agreement with the rulings of the school of Hillel. Imagine that. You're in a debate, probably with your spouse. <laughs> and a booming voice from heaven comes down and says, you guys are both okay, but you know, I'm with Janelle on this one. <laughs> According to Janelle, this happens all the time, but I don't, <laughs> I don't hear it. It goes on in the Talmud to say, since, however, both are the words of the living God, Shammai and Hillel, since both are the words of the living God, what was it that entitled the school of Hillel to have the law fixed according to their rulings? Because they were kindly and modest. They taught their own rulings as well as the school of Shammai, and even more, they taught the rulings of the school of Shammai before their own. This should teach you that one who humbles oneself is exalted by the Holy One, and one who exalts oneself is humbled by the Holy One. This is essentially the posture of our faith. When we are being faithful to the Christian tradition, we are approaching each other with enough humility to say, this is where I stand. This is what I am convinced of. But you might be right. What's your best argument? Let's talk about it. Let's dialogue about it. Let's contend with each other in good faith. In the Jewish tradition, it is believed that this space between two positions, two people or two schools or two groups who are deeply convinced that they have laid hold of the truth, it is believed that the world is created in the space between them. These old Jewish schools of thought even interpret Genesis 1 as a kind of parable of that reality, that God in the beginning took the light and separated it from the darkness, and creation occurred between them. Listen, when you and I are engaged in honest, good faith, dialogue and contention with each other about what's true, we are creating a new world. We are deeply uncomfortable with that though. Most of us would just rather be right. And so because we don't want to engage in a dialogue that creates new possibilities between us, we turn this into a weapon so that we can end the conversation and enjoy our moment of ego in the sun. Isn't that true? Are you feeling a possibility here? Yes. Well, this takes a lot of courage, I think, to engage in an honest, good faith contention with another person or another church or another coworker 
or the person you have committed your life to partner with. Or maybe the person who says, I think that there is something fundamentally flawed with you because of the way that you are created. That right there creates an issue. Because I don't think that what we're called to is a bad faith dialogue. And so when we're engaged in these kinds of dialogues, there are a couple of things that I think are important. First, when Jesus engages in this pattern of dialogue with the tradition of Christianity, when he states the thesis and then states his own antithesis, there is, of course, a third movement in any dialectical engagement, and that is the synthesis, which Jesus doesn't give us. He gives us one interpretation of the law. He gives us his interpretation of the law, and he leaves that third possibility, the synthesis, unspoken. I think that is an implicit invitation for all of us to join him in the conversation. Because the truth is found in that vacant space between the two. Now, don't get me wrong. That space between the two is not compromise. It's not compromise. It's not a balance. And that is where we struggle. If you are engaged in a conversation with somebody who approaches this issue, whatever it might be, in a, from bad faith, who insists on being right, who insists on using the tools of conversation to do violence to you, you don't have to engage that. And we'll see an example of Jesus doing that later in this series, which means you have to come back. <laughs> but for now, we are assuming that this is a good faith dialogue couple of helpful tips for this. The first is what I've already said, that the truth is often found in that vacant space between different positions. Our job then, number two, is to search for the truth. That means our commitment has to be not to our own ego, our own status, our own position, that we are deeply, even radically committed to finding out what is actually true. And that requires that we leave our ego as much as possible at the door. That we commit to not using our scriptures or our tradition or our particularly great skills at rhetoric as weapons in those arguments. Hey, listen, there are a couple of kinds of people, I think, in this world. You know, um, you've probably heard this before. Like, there are two kinds of people in the world. The first are people who make lists, and the second are people, anyway, never mind, that's a joke. <laughs> so many of us don't want to have these conversations. We just want to win a fight, right? I've already said that. Um, but the problem with that is, because so many of us just want to win a fight, we spend most of our time becoming really good at winning fights. And so we've learned to argue and jockey and position ourselves against each other in such a way that we can employ attitude and rhetoric and tone of voice and body posture and references to you know, authoritative information in a way that utterly belittles the person that we're arguing with. 
And we do this in our marriages, we do this in the workplace, we do this at school, we do that everywhere. We do this everywhere. It's an ego trip to win an argument. But here's the problem. There are a whole bunch of other people, maybe even most of us, who don't want to fight at all. We hate fighting. We hate confrontation. And so we do whatever we have to do to avoid any discussion or conversation or dialogue about hard things. We hate politics. Listen, a third of Americans are not engaged in politics for this exact reason. Because most politics is simply the art of winning an argument in order to elevate your status and continue to win elections. Our politics are not an honest, good faith effort to find what's really true. And so the rest of us just learn to disengage. That happens in our religious spaces by default. So I think that it's critical that we learn to set aside our egos and simply search for the truth. So when we do that, and this I think is key, the last tip, uh, I think that we have to learn to respect the minority opinion. And here's what I mean by that. If the words of the living God are in both arguments, if the words of the living God are in both arguments, then we have to always be aware that whatever outcome we choose, whatever side we end up taking, and it is critical to take a side on important issues, whatever side we end up taking, we hold on to the minority position. Because oftentimes the truth comes from there. This is the entire tradition of the Old Testament prophets. That those who held on to a kind of minority report their words are preserved so that later generations can say, oh, we missed it. There's the truth. God is with widows and orphans and the poor. That was the minority report for hundreds of years in Israel. We can never be so arrogant as to believe that our opponents might not hold the truth of God as well in some way or shape or form when they're good faith arguments. And so that's the challenge, right? Discerning between those two. Is my conversation partner, my dialogue partner in this tradition, somebody who's also committed to the truth? Or are they just committed to leveraging power? And that's also a dialogue. That's also an act of discernment. And that's why the spirit is here. I have a good friend who's a minister uh, in Florida and recently on, I don't know, Twitter or Facebook or TikTok, I don't know, something. Uh, he said something that was very helpful to me. He said, the Holy Spirit doesn't teach us to fight. The Holy Spirit teaches us to pray. Whatever happens here today, I don't want you to hear me saying that God has called you to fight. We do, of course, have to fight for things that are right and good, but not for the sake of the fight. This controversy exists for the sake of heaven, for the sake of goodness, 
for the sake of truth. And the Holy Spirit will help us engage in that way when we give ourselves to it in good faith. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. God, we thank you so much for today, for this opportunity to continue to uh, press in for what it means to be a faithful community. To have the courage to take a stand for what we believe in, but also the humility to admit that we don't own the truth. That the truth belongs to you. And that we rely on you and your spirit to shape us and form us into people who can pursue it with kindness, with compassion, with humility, and with integrity. We pray that you would impart those things to us as we continue to press into you in worship. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hello, everyone. <sighs> what beautiful words, music, and challenges that we have just heard. Um, thank you for all being here. I have the pleasure of sharing the announcements again for you all. Uh, first, we have a new dinner and dialogue group starting in October and November. We are soft launching new community groups with three dinner and dialogue gatherings, in person or virtual starting October and November. And we are also looking for volunteers who would like to host or facilitate these groups. So if you're interested, please let us know. Next, we have um, a class coming up, Outgrowing Immature Religious, Religion, I'm sorry, class. And it starts October 4th at 6.30 and it's on a Zoom. Have you ever felt like you are outgrowing your religious beliefs? Join us on this Zoom for a six-week exploration of how healthy spirituality is designed to change and grow with us throughout our lives. It's, it's a wonderful class. Next, we have the Candidate Forum for City Council election in November, October 6th. At, I'm sorry, yeah, November. Uh, it's written down wrong, sorry. Hence, I'm reading it wrong. Uh, October 6th at 6.30 p.m. Oceanside Sanctuary's Justice Works team is participating with other congregations and SDOP who will be hosting a candidate forum for the upcoming city council election in November. That's where the November came from, sorry. Uh, this candidate forum will take place again October 6th at 6.30, hosted by St. John's Church. It's in, in uh, person at 1524 Lemon Street in Oceanside, California. So if you're available, please do uh, show up and come. Um, I think that it's, it's important to be involved. For all of these events and more, you can RSVP at OceansideSanctuary.org slash calendar or scan the QR code. Um, and lastly, if you like what we're doing here, you might wonder how can I support this uh, mission? Oceanside Sanctuary is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we rely on your gifts. Um, and uh, so you are uh, able to give through the QR codes. You can go to oceansidesanctuary.org 
org slash give. There's also some uh, offering boxes here in the church. And I hope that the words that were shared today and the music uh, helps you start this new week with some new perspectives and, and that you'll be challenged and blessed. And this concludes our service. So may the peace of God be with you. All right, see you next week. Bye, everybody.